BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. Victor Davis Hanson, the star and namesake, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Just making a note, we'll talk about this later, but Victor's official website, The Blade of Perseus, can be found at victorhanson.com. Victor, Plenty to talk about. I know you were at Stanford the last few days. And, well, why not begin this podcast by talking about the fallout from the fracas a few days ago, week ago, at the law school? And there is fallout from that. I'd like to get your thoughts about that, Victor. And we'll get to that and plenty more right after these important messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, uh, since last we spoke about the uh, incident, and it's more than an incident, it's at, at, at Stanford Law School where um, Judge Duncan was invited by the Federalist Society to speak. And and as many people, probably everybody knows, uh, it was interrupted. The, the law school, um, the law school's uh, DEI assistant dean interrupted the students. Uh, there were protesting, cursing, you know, everything we've come to expoke, expect of woke law school students. Duncan has fought back since. He's been apologized to by the, the dean of the law school. She's been attacked because she apologized. The president of Stanford has apologized. Um, and then there's been some reporting by the Washington Free Beacon and other entities about you know, who was there? Who were these protesters? And they've they've been outing them to some degree. And then those protesters don't want to be. You're violating my free, my First Amendment rights by by naming me. You know, it's just so this this madness 
ensues and it brings, I guess, greater truth and therefore greater shame to Stanford University. Victor, you were just there. I know you know some of the p- players who were involved. What are your thoughts about the well? I mean, first of all, of this everybody should realize how far we are from sanity because they inv- the Federal Society invited Kyle Duncan, a distinguished federal judge, and his sin was that in a case involving a violent offender, this violent offender decided that he was going to transition. And he decided that, he, you know what, he was going to identify him with his pronouns at the time of his offense, basically. And he wasn't going to play that game. So he was going to speak. And the, as you know, the Dean of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion was ready for him. So wrote a pre-prepared speech criticizing him on the expectation that the students in the law school would get violent and fight. And I mean, violent in the sense that, I mean, Jack, they they call him scum. They said, you scum. And one person said, I can find the prostate. You can't find the CLIT. And they screamed at him. And there was a mixture of of typical Stanford. Three things are everybody has to realize about the Stanford student, the left wing Stanford student. Number one, they're bullies. They're bullies, bullies, bullies. They scout and scream, and and they do that only when they're in the number. I, I've dealt with them before. Number two, they're wimps. So if anybody says, if you want to disrupt something and you want to violate the canons of Stanford, then we're going to identify who you were. We've got a video of the whole thing. And there were people on campus that said, well, what good does it do for the law the law dean to apologize or the president of Stanford University apologize and then to say that these people violated our own rules when you're not going to punish them? And you're not going to punish them because you're afraid of these little kids. And then the third is they're arrogant, they're elitist. So among the slurs that they said to, I don't know if it's a slur, but among their intended slurs, Jack, was that they said, you couldn't even get into Stanford. Can you imagine that? The the pseudo-Marxists that are, you know, march, long live the proletariat. You couldn't get into our elitist little group. And so that was how schizophrenic they were. And then when they don't want... They don't want their names to be released. Or like Antifa, we're the revolutionaries, but we're not going to show our faces. And that that was pretty bad. And as I said earlier with Sammy, I mean, this was on the heels of another Stanford professor saying, weighing in on the Johnny Depp trial and making derogatory remarks about the Mexican-American female attorney, basically saying she was sluttish call me girl or something, and then saying that Johnny Depp should be killed, that his body should be eaten by rats. That's a professor. And then you had the other professor making fun of Baron Trump. And then you had the Federal Society attacked earlier, Jack, a year ago when a student claimed uh, sent out a phony memo from them saying they were going to organize an armed insurrection. And then we had the bankman freed parents who were both Stanford law professors who, as I said earlier, the New York Times reminded us that they were far more intimately involved with the Ponzi scheme of their son than they had let on via donations that he had given to the mother's, you know, left wing dark money bundling operation. 
uh, mine the gap or whatever it was called, close the gap. And then we had the father who was an advisor as well, and somehow millions of dollars of uh, ill-gotten uh, real estate ended up in their name. And this is all, as I said earlier, superimposed on the vocabulary list. Everybody's talking about the snitch list where you rat out somebody who uses the word American or immigrant. You hear a professor say that. Then this was all on the heels of the 22%. They admitted they only let 22% of white students in. In the same period, Jack, in which they made a big performance art apology uh, that they were no longer anti-Semitic, that they did not, they, they admitted now in the 20s and 30s, they excluded people on the basis of their religious or ethnic identifications. But that was so horrible they would never do that again. And yet they release this a few weeks later that there's only 22 percent uh, admitted of a demographic that's about 70 percent of the population. And we had the admission scandal. Remember where the sailing coach was trying to pocket millions of six million dollars to get students into Stanford. And we have the president, the president of the universities under uh, pressure to resign because allegedly he doctored an a, uh, article 30 years ago. I'm not qualified to adjudicate whether that's fair or demagog demagogic. But my point is that uh, as a person at the Hoover Institution and a graduate of Stanford, they all think that uh, their reputation is so wonderful and that if you're at Hoover, you should you can't sully their name. I have just the opposite. I, I don't tell people I went there. I don't feel like it's a badge of honor. When I went there, and that was 50 years ago, I, I enrolled as a graduate's PhD in 1975 student, but I had all Germanic, English, Austrian, Irish professors, and they were all top trained, and it was no nonsense. There was no theory. There was no Marxist. That There was no woke. There was no critical race theory. There was no Foucault, Derrida. It was just, you're going to be the best Latin and Greek scholar in the, we can produce. And you're going to know literature and history and archaeology and numismatics and epigraphic. And if you don't like it, well, then you quit. And if you don't pass your exams and you don't pass your courses with the kind of grades that we expect, we're going to flunk you out. They flunked out half the people. And that was the idea. So it was, it was, but I don't, that doesn't exist anymore is what I'm trying to say. So the new Stanford, I have no affinity with. And it's kind of sad in my case, as I said, that my mom was a little farm girl out here and her, she begged her father to mortgage 40 acres so she could get the money to go there. And she got a BA from University Pacific. Then she went back again, got one from Stanford and got a JD and became a lawyer from Stanford. She was on the board of visitors of the law school. That that doesn't exist anymore. They destroyed it. They're getting a lot of pressure from alumni. And that was why they issued the apologies, because they don't want the donor class to stop paying. So where, what's the what's the. Uh, we know we know that the medicine for them is worse than the disease. We could stop it tomorrow, Jack. All you'd have to do is this is the Stanford policy. No one disrupts an invited guest. If you disrupt an invited guest, if you heckle, if you try to prevent the speaker, whether you're a dean of equity, inclusion, divert, whatever, or a Stanford law school, then you're going to be expelled for a semester or a year or permanently, depending on the egregiousness of your crime. That would stop it. And then if you said, 
if you were a donor, you say, I'm not giving any more money. No, no more money. And then if the Republicans were to take the Senate and they were to say, you know what? These universities have lost their way. They're, they're toxic influences on our youth. They're indoctrinating them. They're not civil. They're not educational. They're not following the Constitution. They're violating the First Amendment. They're violating the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, Amendment when people are brought up on charges of harassment or something. And you know what? They're going to have to pay taxes on their endowment. Amen. So if Stanford's got $35 billion and it gets $3 billion in income, then you're going to have to pay a billion dollars. And then if you had to pay a billion dollars, you might not have 15,000 administrators for every 16,000 students. So, uh, Victor, guess, you know, was there any news about, and maybe there isn't, the, the DEI, the, the assistant, I, I forget her name, the, the assistant. Her name was who, Tirana Steinbach. Uh, no, she did not apologize, but uh, the law dean who gave an anemic apology, they lined up on both sides of the hallway when she went to class the next day and tried to stare her down. I think they dressed in black, and then two-thirds of her students walked out. And so uh, they put, they're they put all, junk they, up on the walls, too, I think. In yes, class. it's empathetic for the DEI dean as a hero. They love her. She she planned the whole thing, Jack. She planned. She knew that when the speaker was invited by the Federal Society, that they were going to protest. She wanted that protest. So she wrote a speech in advance. So at, and at a key moment, when the crescendo reached the proper moment, then she was going to appear as if she was some type of magical creature and say, stop heckling, uh, I am the diversity, equity, inclusion. And then she was going to turn to him and say, give me that podium, which she took. And then right. she read a pre-scripted, written in advance, attack on the judge. And then they got very happy. And then after she's done, she said, you can leave. And half of them then made a big perp walk out. And that was what they did. And then they attacked Judge Duncan because they said he wanted the confrontation and no, you can't show our pictures. We showed all the pictures of the Federalist Society student members. We right. plaster their names. I walk that way to my apartment from the Hoover Institution. I walk right through the Wallace School, and you can see the names of the uh, Fed Society. They were up there, but you don't dare put our pictures up. It's kind of like the Antifa stuff. Right. We're going to have 120 days of rioting and 14,000 of But, oh, mommy, please come and get me. These meanie policemen, we spat on them. We threw crap in their face. We hit them. We put lasers in their eyes. But they arrested me. And now they're going to publish my name. And if I get a felony, I, I can't Please go to Amherst. And then I won't be able to go to Harvard. And I can't get into the bicoastal elite. That's how they think. They're, they're, it's, they're, they're not nice people. Right. By the way, the, they are not nice. There were two, two uh, U.S. Marshals. At the event, uh, they they had anticipated maybe something was going to go wrong here. My understanding is Duncan, who I don't know, and and uh, but seemed I, I'm going to tough it out here. And they were worried about him even after the half the the idiots left the room. The other half was still so nasty and threatening that they they uh, got him out of there. So yeah, well, I mean they basically. Uh... 
if Joe Biden and Merrick Garland applied the standards they did to January 6th, they, I mean, they did the same thing at UC Davis. At UC Davis a week later, right? Charlie, Charlie Kirk, Kirk, right. Kirk went there, and what was unusual? They tried. They tried to burst in. They tried to did the same thing, but the difference it was the same thing. It wasn't the admin. It wasn't the DEI administrator that hijacked. It was the president, chancellor of UC Davis, right? And he gave a lecture, and when he, I think it was basically character assassination when he said he was basically said that Charlie Kirk was a hateful, known, I don't know, revolutionary, awful person, and he shouldn't be here. He said he called for the murder, lynching, or what, of trans. That was in the Sacramento Bee, a McClatchy paper, and they had to retract that, by the way, when he threatened to sue. So what's new in the 60s, as I said, you know, you marched on the president if you were radical, his office. These are top-down. The president of UC Davis, the chancellor, was... Right. said things that were intended to stop Charlie from speaking and right. incited that violence. And according to the left, that's conspiracy. And he he caused a violent confrontation on his own campus. If you're the D, the diversity, equity, inclusion at Stanford, and you're an administrator, you helped disrupt a an event contrary to your own school's regulation. But if the president of Davis breaks his own rules and the diversity czar of Stanford breaks their own rules, then what do you expect the student to do? Next time they get some trans speaker, if some conservative person goes to there, what would happen if a trans speaker says, I'm here to speak why we need mandatory uh, operations of a student, 12 or 13 year old wants a trans. She should not have parents. And there are people who have that, or I'm going to have a drag show for kids. I think that's great for kids. And some conservative person goes there and said, shut up. You're crazy. What are they going to do to that person? You know what oh they're going to do. They're going to expel them. Right. So these people right. are morally and intellectually bankrupt. They really are. They, they're not nice people. They don't believe in the rule of law. These are not Jack 18, 19 year old, undergraduates at Stanford. These are people in their 20s and 30s. They are adults, adults. They are people learning learning the American legal system. They're supposed to be devoted as guardians of the law, and they're not. And they, I think they should either sanction the law school, the American Bar Association should, or they should put a moratorium on it and just shut it down for a year. And then have an internal investigation and see why students are disrupting classes, why they are disrupting lectures, why they are obscene, why they were yelling to a person, you suck, mentioning sexual organs, calling him scum. And how can they get away with that at a university? And and that's not going to happen. Right. Well, Victor... Plenty more stuff is happening in the your great state there, the Golden State. There are, are reparations uh, uh, being planned in San Francisco. There is a great, uh, on the conservative side of things, a great uh, analysis that's just been released about uh, corporate support for uh, Black Lives Matters and other radical organizations and and uh, so let's let's get to a, a kind of a California jump ball right after these important messages. 
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Hey, folks, do check out victorhanson.com. That's the Blade of Perseus. That's Victor's official website. And when you go there, and you will, you'll find links to all sorts of things, all of Victor's appearances, these podcasts, uh, the articles he writes for American Greatness, and the articles he writes exclusively for victorhanson.com. And those are called Ultra Articles, and you cannot read them unless you subscribe, and you should subscribe. You like to hear what Victor says? Great. Obviously, you do. You're listening to this podcast. But if you're not reading what Victor writes, you are doing yourself a disservice. So consider subscribing. $5 is introductory. Get in the door. $50 discounted uh, for the year. That's victorhanson.com. Come. So, Victor, two things. One is our, our friends, and I, I'm very fond of the Claremont Institute and uh, the folks there, the Claremont Review of Books. They publish that. It's just a terrific journal. Um, Charlie, um, <laughs> Charles Kessler, I was going to say, I was almost said Charlie Sykes. I couldn't be a more opposite person. No, Charles Kessler no, no, Charles no, 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 no. <laughs> but they've created the, uh, at their center for, the American Way of Life, they have just released a a great database on uh, uh, corporate funding for Black Lives Matters and other associated organizations. And I sent you the link for this, Victor. I got to reveal a little something. And folks might be staggered. There's $82 billion, $82 billion that have been allocated. You name it, whatever major corporation, Pepsi, uh, Nike, it's uh, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, 82 billion. So I send it to Victor. He said, That's, it must be a mistake, 82 million. No, it's billion. So, of course, the, the website was was attacked. It was it was um, launched this past week. It was shut down by some cyber attacks, but the Claremont folks got it back up. So that's one thing. And on the on the a uh, little north and of uh, where Claremont is up San Francisco uh, this past week has been has been rolling out over the last several weeks Victor debate within the city council for uh, reparations for blacks there are some criteria for who who is a black and who's who's a San Francisco black but uh, if the if this proposal became law I believe it would cost the citizens of San Francisco, who's ever left, many billions of dollars to to fund this insanity. So, Victor, pick, take one, take both, please. And your you remember that? Uh, I think everybody remembers. Remember that African American uh, 
retired policeman. I think it was in St. Louis, and he went down to check on his the store, and they killed him. They shot him. Correct. Correct. And then I think in that same period, there were I don't know how many people were shot. There was somebody in Las Vegas that was shot during that rioting. And I don't know, I think uh, he was Greek-American. He was attacked. And what I'm getting at is all that violence that we don't talk about now, that was all engineered by Antifa and BLM. And we know that BLM absconded with millions, the four, the three women who founded it. They were gay black women. And remember that, that BLM started, Jack, before the George Floyd as a gay feminist organization that was antithetical, they said, to black uh, toxic masculinity. That's how it started as a Marxist. The, the, the right. three women were Marxists, and then Marxist. they got became capitalists when they bought these homes in, near Malibu Canyon Road, and I think it was in Georgia, and they absconded with the money they had, and et cetera. But when these had, when these, what, why were the uh, corporations giving money? Was it because they feel felt idealistically that BLM was a civil rights organization, or was it they felt that the more that they uh, let people know that they had donated, then the more that what it was kind of like Jesse Jackson in the 1980s. Remember the racket he had where he would go to Toyota or people and say, give us money and we won't picket you. Yeah. And the rainbow that's, uh, op- or push, operation, operation push. Yeah. And that's what they were doing. These They were play, paying protection money and the billions, apparently, so that BLM would leave them alone. And I just keep thinking of who were these people? They were mostly wealthy, bi-coastal white people who live in very nice homes. And they live in a lifestyle that protects them from the ramifications of their own ideology. And they were using somebody else's money, the stockholder's money. And then they gave it and then they bragged that we gave we it. You know, we at Disney, we at Nike, we at American Airlines, we are for social justice, blah, 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 and we're going to get and we sponsor. Yeah, that's what they do. And they don't care about the consequences, who it hurts or who it empowers. And that that, that was a very interesting summer of 2020. It really struck me when in May and early June, when we had those two big demonstrations and 1,100 healthcare workers said basically all that stuff we told you we'd put you in jail for if you didn't social distance and you didn't wear a mask. Black Lives Matter protesters can go out and they get right next to each other. They can breathe, yell, scream, no mask, no social distancing. And they're exempt because if you if they had if they couldn't do that because of the quarantine that we forced on everybody else, the psychological damage would be worse. And at that point, the whole thing collapsed as far as I was concerned, the whole veracity of the left and quarantines and lockdown, all that. It was all just politics. It was a bunch of, you know, deplorables are going to have to be kept in their homes, like in their caves. And then all of the choice and noyed groups can go out and do whatever they want, whether they're wealthy or BLM or Antifa or whatever. That was pretty much that summer. You want to go take a downtown Seattle or Washington? Go ahead and do it. You're exempt. You want to walk around with a loaded AR-15 in Seattle, three people get shoot, sh- shot and whatever that was called, Chaz or something, fine. Kyle Rittenhouse, well, we're going to go after him and put him in jail. That's how this the system works. It wasn't like that before, but 
it's all about asymmetry and I don't know how to stop it. I really don't. I don't know. You can't, whatever your politics are right now, forget whether you're Republican, forget whether you're Democrat, forget right. whether you're liberal, forget whether you're conservative, forget, forget, forget. You have one choice. Are you going to vote for a woke Marxist revolutionary agenda or you're not? That's it. And what do I mean by that agenda? I mean, do you want to defund the police and let people out who are violent criminals the day they commit assaults? Do you want your cities to be torn apart by homeless defecation, urination, fornication? Do you want 7 million people you have no idea who they are coming across your border? If that's, do you want to stop energy independence? If that's what you're for, then vote for the woke. But you're going to destroy civilization in the process. Victor, can you see the um, whatever it's called in San Francisco? Is it the Board of Supervisors? Whatever the, the version of the city council is there. Can you see them voting for to approve a, a significant reparations? Uh, Only in the sense that, uh, you know, they want $5 million reparation payments. It's easy to vote for it, but where are they going to get the money? They're broke. The state said they had. Twenty-five uh, billion dollars shortfall. Remember, we we got we had all that federal money. We had a hundred billion dollars, but it looks more like forty-five billion. Because what's happening, Jack, is that about five things are in a perfect storm right now in California. Number one, uh, about three to five hundred thousand people are leaving, and most of the middle class people have already left that were entrepreneurial. So you got to remember in California that 1% pay half the income tax, which is half the state revenue. They're gone. They, they're 10 million. They're gone. This is Ronald Reagan voter, Pete Wilson, Schwarzenegger. But the next level, the high professionals in the coastal corridor, they're leaving too. These are, they're not necessarily conservative. These are the tech people, the banking people, uh, the corporate people, they're leaving and they're taking billions of dollars with them. So our revenue base is going down, 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 down. And we've got one third of the welfare recipients in the United States. We've got one, uh, we've got one sixth of the population or one fifth of the population lives below the poverty line. So when I drive across California every week I, I, and I see the underbelly of California, it's like a third world country. So it's not and, you know, it's a, it's it's at a war with agriculture. It's a war with timber. It's a war with mining, construction, manufacturing. And it was all predicated on Silicon Valley had nine trillion dollars of market capitalization and these great universities, uh, USC, UCLA, UC Berkeley, Stanford, Caltech, the, you know, UC, UC Irvine, they were bringing in all these foreign students with all this money. And that's drying up. The colleges are shrinking. People are not going to college in sufficient numbers to support their overhead. And Silicon Valley is laying off people. And you look at Silicon Valley Bank, that's the future. And so the state is in a crisis right now. And that that deficit is going to get bigger and bigger. So if somebody says they're going to in San Francisco says all of you San Franciscans who have never had a slave and you have no one in your family in five generations that had a slave are going to pay 
$5 million to people who have never been a slave and don't know anybody in five generations that are a slave. And we have no idea to tell who is actually black, whether it's one sixteenth, one eighth, one half, unless we're going to use old Confederate one drop rules. And we don't know whether Jamaicans and Africans, I don't know if you come from Jamaica or do you pay or do you get, Jack? Did you, were you the son of a, a plantation owner that had slaves? If you come from, I don't know, East Africa, West Africa, are you going to pay reparations because your ancestors sold slaves to the slave traders? And what are you going to do with every other group? And so a guy comes across the border illegally from Mexico and he's going to pay out of his paycheck. And it's not it doesn't. The, the thing is that about California, Jack, is there's only five, four to five percent African-American. And there is only about 37 percent so-called white people. The rest of the state is Hispanic and Asian and mixed race. So. And the state was a, a free state. It did not join uh, the Confederacy. It joined the Union. It was anti-slavery. There had never been a slavery and slave in the state. So now they say, well, there's there were zoning restrictions against African American. Well, there were zoning restrictions against everybody. They had Armenian restrictions, Arab restrictions, like any other majority culture in the 19th century. And so everything about it is absurd, and they know it. It's just a shakedown. And, you know, every once in a while, the Heritage Foundation comes out and, and gives us a price tag for the Great Society transfers. It's up to about $20 trillion plus, right? So according to the people in San Francisco's logic, you would say, you know what? Affirmative action and all these welfare, they went inordinately per capita African-Americans, so those were reparations. And when you look at Stanford's, admission policy and you have 22% white and you look at what's going on the Oscars, you're into a repertory compensatory process already. And so this is just monetizing what's already de facto. It'd be like some white person who was a mechanic from, I don't know, Indianapolis saying, you know what? I couldn't get into the University of Indiana University, even though I had a straight because I was white. I got passed over as a fireman because I was white. I didn't. And then I have a, I want to sue because this was racist. And I don't know anything about my great, great grandfather walked, looked with the, you know, the Indiana volunteers to fight with Sherman. So I don't know what this is all about, but it's going to, it's not going to go through. It's going to cause a lot of dissension. It'll never happen because we don't have any money. We're broke. Yeah. Victor, would you, would you, Take what you've just said and weave into it the piece you've you've written, and people can find it on on your website. And you wrote it for American Greatness, and I think it's your syndicated column. Are are we the Byzantines? You write about the fall of of Istanbul and and uh, what what happened at the fall of uh, the the end of the old Roman Empire in the fourteen hundreds. Yes, and very sad. How it compares to what we're going through today. Well, we, we have this word, this adjective Byzantine, that's a, a pejorative adjective that says overly bureaucratic or corrupt. But that's very unfair. When the empire fell officially in 476 with Romulus Augustus, kid emperor, it did not fall in the east where the wealth was. And so 
under Constantine, but then later under Theodosius, and then on, especially under just under Justinian in the 530s, it had a renaissance, and it reclaimed half the empire, and it it codified Roman law, the Justinian law code. It built Hagia Sophia, the greatest church in the world, for 900 years, and then it was the largest mosque in the world for another 200 years, and. Uh, it, it was an amazing culture. It kept alive classical learning. It was technologically adept. It built the most sophisticated fortifications in the history of urban municipal fortification. It was impregnable. And it went on like that for a thousand years. It survived the, the Fourth Crusade where the Franks and the Venetians uh, hijacked the crusade and instead sacked Constantinople and destroyed the city and for 50 years hijacked the empire, and it was weakened after that. But the point is that it was a bastion of Western culture and society right on the Bosphorus, right at the entrance of the Black Sea. And it was renowned. The city was like no other. And with the rise of the Seljuk Turks in the 1300s, and then the, who became the Ottomans, they wanted it, but they couldn't take it because... They had high technology. They had Greek fire that, that was kind of a precursor to napalm. They could shoot out of pressurized tanks as flamethrowers. They had superior galleys. They were masters of fortification. They were very clever diplomats playing one side off. Well, anyway, the point I'm making is in the 15th century, they had, in the 14th century, they had a plague, the Black Plague, but they really took a big hit and they emptied the city. And they barely recovered. And they were barely recovered from the Fourth Crusade. And a city of 800,000 was down to 50,000 people. Grass was growing in the lawn. And finally, Mehmed, the emperor, 21-year-old kind of a punk, and you know, he's, he's uh, Erdogan's hero, of course, now. He was eyeing this, and he had made a deal with Constantinople. They said, basically, the Venetians can come in, the Genovese can come in, the Ottomans can come in. We're going to be an ecumenical new type of empire. We're going to let people trade as they want. We'll have a, and we'll keep the Bosphorus open. We'll be neutral between West and East. And the Ottomans said, no, we're going to take it. And nobody had ever taken the wall. So they, they came in April 2nd of 1453. And by May 29, there was only 7,000 against an army of 180,000. I've been reading, you know, rereading the modern Greek accounts and some of the Italian. It's very sad, Jack, to, to see this wonderful culture in this deserted downtown of Constantinople with grass growing in the streets, and they can't get enough people to help them. And the Ottomans are kind of like the Chinese. They're rising, 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 and they're, and they're saying, we're the new power, we're going to take over. And yet they almost stopped them. Uh, if they hadn't had one breach in the walls, the, the Ottomans were ready to go home because it was getting summertime and the plague season, and they couldn't feed everybody outside the walls. They, and, they, and then they had a, a freak accident where they attacked the Venetian uh, contingent, and they were able to kill some of the most marquee Venetian mercenary uh, helpers, I should say. But Western Christendom didn't help them. I mean, had the Venetians or the Genovese or the Franks or the Germans or the British, if they, had they come in number, they could have stopped it. 
And so that was the end of Constantinople. It was renamed. Well, can Istanbul. I can I ask you, Victor? Like, wh yeah. why was there a was was too bad, was, or we we don't have the there's no interest, so they did not see the consequences. They had a big fight, uh, exige, uh, Christian exegesis. It was centered around whether the Holy Ghost was part of the Trinity or not, whether he oh, was a filioque, separate person. Right. right. Yes, okay. that yeah. part, and then right. the liturgies were fighting, and then there was bitterness about the. Fourth Crusade, where Western Christians did, all, you know, killed all the Byzantines and vice versa. Right. But what I was getting at in the column is it was the Byzantines were very unrealistic. They had this sense that we were a majestic culture. We've been in control. We saved Western civilization. We've been here for a 1,100 years. We can't fall. We're sophisticated. We have the greatest city in the world. But it, they weren't. They weren't creating wealth. They were taking gold fixtures off the wall and melting it down. They were inflating the currency. They were high. They didn't understand what the Ottomans wanted to do. The Ottomans wanted to obliterate them. And they kept thinking, well, you know, why would they want to get rid of us? We have technology. We have learning. They're parasitical off of us. They can trade. We'll help them. No, they hate you for what you are. And I was trying to suggest that in America today, we're $33 trillion in debt. And like the Ottomans, uh, like the Byzantines, we have no borders. They couldn't control their borders anymore. And like the Byzantines of old, we're inflating our currency. And we just kept thinking the China, ah, the Chinese, man, they don't understand. We're Americans. We have Star Wars. We have video games. You know, we have Facebook. We did Twitter. We're, we have Hollywood, and you want to say, no, we don't have Hollywood. And the NBA is a joke, and the Oscars are a joke, and the Tonys are a joke, and the Grammars are a joke, and Stanford, and Harvard, and Yale, and they're a joke. And all these places that used to give us scientific research and wonderful medicine and the best business schools, they're all woke. And they're predicating their meritocracy on race, gender, and ideology. And that can come very quickly. And there's nothing that says you get up in the morning and say, I'm an American, man. I deserve to be the most powerful country in the world. No, you only have three, 330 million people. Right. Chinese have 1.4 billion. And right now, when we look at Ukraine, half the world is against us. There's a billion point four Chinese. There's a billion point four Indians, there is 150 almost million Russians, there's 80 million Iranians, 25 million North Koreans, I don't know what it is, 85 million Turks, they don't like us. And if you look at South America, Brazil, Argentina, they're on the side of Russia. Yeah. And so, and we're in debt and we don't We've had five near crashes on our airline system, five. And anybody's been in an airplane lately and watch how the ground crews operate or how the, the plane deals with old-fashioned turbulence or how people treat each other on the plane, it's third world. And so and I, if I were driving today like I did across the San Joaquin Valley from I-5 to the 99, and I said, I'm not in the United States. You would think that I was in rural Mexico or maybe South America. The homes are no different. There's, or if you walked along, I could take you one block around, which is about a mile and a half 
down an avenue whose name I won't mention. And you would think that we were in Haiti because along the side of the street, there's sofas. There's a new, uh, last week, there was two ovens. There's hot water heaters. There's wrecked cars. There's wet trash. And it's, it's, it's like eight feet tall. And people just throw it there and nobody picks it up. It just happens. The only thing that is very neat now, in a very ironic way, Jack, is when somebody runs a stop sign, and that's very common, or gets drunk and kills someone, the yeah. family appropriates that public side of the road, you know, and makes it what we call in Greek an iconostasis. It's a, right. a shrine, you know, right. with a cross and flowers. And guess what? It's absolutely meticulously kept. It's beautiful. It's got a little white picket fence. It's got candles. It's got a cross. It's got a picture. And they're everywhere on the side of the road. And no one throws trash in them. And they, But other than that, they throw trash everywhere else. Right. It's, yeah. And so what I'm getting at is people in the community are capable of creating safe spaces that are hallowed and clean, but not when it's not in their interest to. And they don't care about the landowner over here, so or the conditions. So it's, you know, I, I'll give you an example. When I go into town, I say to my wife, "Okay, it's going to be interesting." <laughs> so I had to run in the other day, and I came back, and I said, "This is what happened." I went into the local town and I went through the alley where the mailboxes for the main post office is. And it's one way, Jack. It's very narrow. You go in and there's a mailbox on your left. You go down the window and I make my turn into and a car is coming at me at full speed against the wrong way. And all, and I have to go in an agonal. And it was so narrow that she could not get around me. So I, I got out very politely and I said, you know, this is one way you almost hit me. And she, in broken Spanish and English, started swearing at me and angry and got in, her, got in her cell phone like, you know, I don't know what I did. I was going in the right direction, but I had the audacity to say, you're breaking the law. You're breaking the law. And then I went into another on to get gas and... I, uh, the first gas pump had a little, you know, a plastic, it doesn't work. And I turned around when the other one doesn't work. And then there was a line there and in front of me, another car cut in front of the other person. They almost had a gunfight there. They were screaming and yelling. And so I thought, wow, this is, this is very strange. And then I took a car into a car wash, my third incident, and the car stalled. It it was a Tesla, and it wouldn't go into neutral. They had locked the wheels, and it took me about a minute to, you know what I mean, to get it back into neutral. Right. And I thought I was going to get beaten up. There were cars screaming and yelling, and people yeah. got out of because there were five, maybe five cars. And then I drove home, and as I drove home, uh, there was a guy stopped on the side of the road and I wanted to go by a, a pond to see if they were letting the water out to the ocean or they were going to recharge our water table. Of course, the pond that we've had the wettest year in history and they're not letting the water recharge fully. They're letting it out the ocean, 10 million acre feet down the San Joaquin and Sacramento rivers. But anyway, there was a guy parked right in the middle of the road 
And I turned on a right turn and he was ready to unload a lazy boy chair right into the water. And I stopped and then he got back in the car, but he had, he even had a blinking light, his black backyard light. His back lights were blinking to let everybody know that he was parked in the middle of the road. (laughs) Can I I ask you a question where you live? How difficult is it to legally throw away a a lazy boy chair? Is it that big of a deal? Right. You know, what do you mean? Everybody does it. Well, You're I mean, pro- to like, bring it it's to a, the dump, you know, like, is it? that? Oh, hard? I see what yeah. you mean. No, it's yeah. 15 bucks, 20 bucks. There's dumps everywhere. There's dumps everywhere. You can do it anywhere. But why would a person do that? They think when they right. don't really like the country, they don't care about the country. They don't care about the people who live there. You know, I always my wife and I walk around. We always see these things, you know, like child's toys floating in a beautiful pond or a frog coming out of the pond, you know, sitting on a bunch of plastic bottles and or, you know, a hawk flying over a, a strip car. And we ask ourselves, what is the mentality of the person who did that? Right. What is it? And like, I'll give you an example. About a month ago, I'm doing my morning 530 walk and a guy pulls up with his wife and this little back road, way in from the road on our property, or what used to be my brother's place, you know, and it's right in your mind. I walk over there, and he's looking around, and I said, what are you doing? And kind of broken English, he said, I'm looking for a bicycle. <laughs> I said, are you serious? And I look in the car, and he's got like seven garbage bags, right? And I said, well, is your bicycle in the garbage bag? <laughs> Uh, and I said, I think you better turn around and go back. Oh, yeah. okay. And then he gets angry at that. What I like about all, they get angry at you. Right. And so right. it's. Your male Karen there. Yeah. You're trouble. Well, I guess. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's civilization in reverse. That's what it right. is. It's like being on the walls of Constantinople. And yeah. I know where how this ends. <laughs> it doesn't right. end well. And the Chinese are the Ottomans. I mean, the Chinese know what, what they think of us. They look at us and they think, you know what? We've got 340,000 students lapping up your technology, and they're taking your engineering and your computer science and your math and your physics, and they don't care about the racial makeup of the faculty. They do not care about woke. They just want to get all of the expertise they can and get back so they can beat these people that think they think like the Ottomans thought of the Byzantines, and we have contemporary accounts of what they thought these people don't enjoy the lifestyle they didn't earn it they they're generations before they're parasites we're going to take it from them they can't stop us that's the chinese attitude and we got all these americans and are like kind of byzantines fighting over words you know whoa whoa, what what's your pronouns who gives a blank about your pronouns when we're in an existential war with the chinese you know, and that's what their attitude is. We're 33 trillion in debt. And finally, you know, the, the, the uh, Medved said, he said, look, OK, we're outside your walls and maybe we can't take them. Maybe you can't. You can give us 800,000 gold florins ducats and we'll leave for a while. And the emperor Constantine says, well, if even if we. He says to everybody, even if we could raise it, but it was more than the aggregate worth in 550. They could have paid it that day. But 
they didn't have it. And then they thought, well, even if we did have it, we paid it. We don't have the ability to stop him next year because they were flat broke. And that's kind of like the United States. We're $33 trillion in debt. And Janet Yellen goes over to what, Kiev and says, I'm going to give you $10 billion. And then Joe Biden says, I'm going to forgive with a wave of the hand $500 billion for student loans. And then Gavin Newsom says, oh, I'm going to give $500 million or these corporate, I'm going to give this. And then all of a sudden you hear, well, wait a minute, this the Silicon Valley bank doesn't have any money. Right. And the government's broke. And Joe Biden says it's covered, but he's lying like he does every day. He gets up in the morning. And so right. it's, it's kind of, I get very depressed when I'm reading this, this chapter, I'm trying to write about this phenomenon of Constantinople and what it meant to civilization because I really believe that it was a viable civilization. And today you would have a Hellenic, you know, Greece, the border with modern Greece is not that far from Constantinople. And that was the West. And I think it would be a, a more, I think that Greece is a more positive influence on the world than is Turkey today. I just, I'm, maybe I'm prejudiced. I'm just going, I mean, the Greeks are not saying, Mr. Erdogan, when you wake up in the morning, you may have a flight of missiles descending on Istanbul, as he is right. to about Athens. Right. They're not making, cutting a deal with you, with Putin. They're not doing all of that stuff. But you might have said that 40 years ago also. Yes, I, I would, even though Greek was very, Greece was very, Anti-American in Turkey. Turkey was very pro-American, but there's still, I can tell you as a person who's been to Turkey 20 times, that when you go from Greece to Turkey and Turkey to Greece, it's a very different experience. Really? Very different. Yes, it is. I've never, you have a minute to tell us? Uh, when you go, to, go ahead. It's a difference between, between going into an Islamic country, and I don't mean this about Turkish people, but Erdogan has said that he's trying to reject the Ataturk legacy of secularism and Westernism. Right. And he said that people should have never, they should have made, he made Santa Sophia the greatest church in Christendom for, as I said, 532 till 1450. Three, the greatest church in the West. He made it into a mosque. It was a world as United Nations heritage site. Right. It had the greatest, biggest dome, the dome in the world until uh, the, the the Vatican dome. It was the right. largest church until the 17th century church in Seville, Spain. And he made that a world. He, he made that into a mosque, just like the Ottomans did. And. He doesn't like any of things that Ataturk did. He wants to make, he said that. Right. And so you can see churches are closing down. There's not very many, there's not freedom of speech. It's not, I mean, you go to the Greeks, it, it's like the United States right. as far as freedom goes. Right. Or Europe, okay. Europe. It's Europe. It's not, it's, and, Whatever. I, 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 yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that the Crusades were wonderful. I'm not saying yeah. Westerners were not without blame. I'm not saying any of that. All I'm saying is that the Byzantines represented a different civilizational right. influence on the world than did the Ottoman Empire, and when that was lost, that was a tragedy, and it had effects throughout history. 
and Greece was occupied. It was only seven years later, and they stormed Mistra, and they begged them not to do. There was no reason they had to do that, and they right. took over Greece till eighteen twenty one, and they suppressed everything. They went in and destroyed everything, and and it's sort of like the occupation of Jerusalem before nineteen sixty seven when. The Israeli army went back into Jerusalem that all of the Jewish uh, tombstones were being used as urinals and people could not go into Jerusalem, certain areas. Okay. And it was it was just different. So when I go to Israel today and I go to the West Bank, the affluent areas of the West Bank, or I fly into a country and then I go to Israel, it's different. That's all. You can say whatever the what you want. It's free. The people are free. And there's a lively debate and the economy works and the infrastructure works. And when I go to Israel and somebody comes up and I'm speaking at a group with a group or something and somebody is uh, an Arab Israeli citizen and they're critical of what I've said. And they said, I don't know anything what I'm talking about. And Israel's a horrible place. And then you say to them, well, you live in Israel. You can right. see you can see Jordan or the West Bank. Why don't you go back? Oh, I don't want to go back. Well, right. And uh, was it your family here? No, I came here in 1978. Well, why don't why do you want to live here then? It's the same thing. We have the phenomenon. I, I know people have come across the border and they're attacking the United States all the time. Right. And you want to know why, why are they doing that? Why don't why, why would you come to a country you don't like? Why would you romanticize a country you fled? All these questions are so obvious, but in our censorious society, we're not allowed to ask them, you know? And so we're all afraid of saying things. Self, but there's a reality out there. There's a reality out there. And I think the Mexican-American community is, it knows a lot more what that reality is than the Anglo community of California because they, most of the ones that I know that are Mexican-American citizens of California are hyper-patriotic. They are so happy to be here rather than in Mexico. They do not want any of their kids to go back to Mexico. And when they're children, I just met a student this weekend who was an intern from a small Mexican-American town. There was no more bright, patriotic. She'd been in the military. And the, uh, the immigrant that comes here and understands you have to assimilate and you have to love the country you chose to and you, more than the country you rejected, that's good. But when you're host, the bankrupt bicoastal elite tell an immigrant, you're coming into a toxic place and we're going to indoctrinate you to make you sure that it's even more toxic. That's 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 yeah. bad news. That's what the left does. Victor, amongst the bad news, you said you mentioned that about five minutes ago, something about uh, India. And and we should talk about that on another podcast because it really troubles me. I, I thought India was part of this, uh, you know, uh, coalition to press it back is. against China. But now I, I no, mean, you no, know, India, was, India was our emerging. It is. I mean, it's a demo- it's, it does well. It's a democracy of sorts. Modi is kind of pro-Western, but the problem with India is that it's poor and it's pressed with China on one side and Russia on the other. Russia was its ally during the whole Cold War. 
and they're getting cheap oil. They're getting oil they can't they they can't believe how cheap it is. Half price. Yeah. And well. China now tells India, you don't have to fear us anymore. The fear is the United States. And the problem with the left is the left goes around the world and it starts lecturing people as it, you know, and what I mean, what do I mean by that? I mean, going into Kabul and waving the pride flag from the embassy or painting George Floyd murals on the sides of, you know, streets or having a gender studies class in a traditional society. And, you know, I just said I'm for free open societies, but I'm not for going into other people's countries and trying to make them into Americans in 10 years. So what we do is, Jack, we lecture, we lecture, we lecture, we lecture, and we talk down to these countries. And we don't think we're talking down because we're doing it from the left. We don't have pith helmets like British imperialists. We're not corporate uh, exploiters from oil companies. We're the left, the diplomatic, the NGO, the professor, they go over to the woke military advisor. They go over these countries or the India and they say, you can't, you've got to do this. You have to be uh, more enlightened about ethnic minorities. You have to, India has to be more about uh, transitioning and you've got to be, you're, you're, you're wrong here. And we start lecturing them. And finally they get sick of it. And they said, we look at your country and what do we see? We see you fled from Afghanistan. We see that there's, human excrement in the streets of San Francisco. We see Washington, D.C., they're carjacking and smashing and grabbing. They, we see New York, they're throwing people in the subway. We see Stanford University Law School. It looks like a third world riot. You won't even let a federal judge speak. And we're not impressed. And we see that you're broke. And we see your banks are failing. Yeah. And so that's what they look at. And we're so arrogant. And we're not doing very well. And that was what, the, what did in the Byzantines. They were arrogant, finally. And they they had such a wonderful legacy. When you look at the reigns of Justinian or Leo or Heraclius or any of these great emperors, what they did, they invested, they built infrastructure, they were balanced budget. They were very adroit with their diplomacy. If they saw two enemies, rather than taking them on at the same time, they would turn them against each other. They were very smart people. And we all we're doing in Ukraine is creating a super anti-American alliance. Yeah. You know, how we ever I mean, did Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken and Susan Rice, and Kamala Harris and Joe Biden get in a room and they thought, hmm, I got a brilliant idea. Let's make sure that Iran is an ally of Russia so that Russia will no longer. uh let Israel reply to Hezbollah. So Hezbollah will have a hand. And then Kamala says, well, why don't we give the Palestinian Hamas people 800 million? That's a good idea. Well, what if what if Russia starts to give enriched uranium to Iran? Well, that might be a balance of power. The poor Shia, the poor Persians, they've been exploited by the Arab. Well, let's get Saudi Arabia. We we broke them off. We we destroyed the Abrams Accord. And maybe we should make encourage an alliance with Iran. It's basically what John Kirby said. And then, well, China, it's a stable. We'll, we'll put them with Russia. They'll all be together. That'll be good. And Turkey, well, you know, I don't if I was Turkey, you know, the poor little Turkey, it's the only Islamic country in NATO. And, yeah, they should have a veto over whether 
Sweden or Finland should join. And you know what? Uh, if they want to sell, make a little money and sell some drones to both sides of the war in Ukraine, that's great. And they can break the sanctions. And those awful Greeks, you know, will let just we cancel their pipeline with natural gas with Cyprus and Israel. But let's encourage. That's how they look at us. And they created, I mean, they created, they dreamed this thing up. And it's, yeah. well, it's who dreamed up the, I, 15 years ago, there was no homeless person. That wasn't an act of omission. That was somebody who dreamed up in a university, a new attitude toward the homeless. Right. And smash and grab carjacking epidemic. That was some criminologist at some left wing university. Oh, and I shouldn't say left wing at university. That, that came up with critical legal theory and critical punitive theory. And so, yeah, they that, that's what's doing us in. And then the people who are not doing us in, that's the guy that gets up, the poor guy who goes up on a line up in a wintry day and makes sure there's electricity or the guy when you're all locked down pulls up in your Amazon truck and he delivers your refrigerator while you're making you know, $500 an hour on a Zoom screen, we make fun of those people. Yeah. And they're the backbone of the country. And that's what Joe, you know, Biden calls them, what, semi-fascist, ultra-maga? Right. Well, Victor, we, we've, we've, we got, we've got to talk about one more thing. And quickly yes. at that, that will be Strategica. And we'll get to that right after this final important message. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I apologize to my to our listeners if they hear the snoring dogs in the background, but, you know, there's nothing we can do about that. God bless them. Dog is God spelled backwards. So, Victor, Strategica is the online journal, the Hoover Institution that you uh, oversee. And there's a new edition out. It's about tanks. And there's been a lot of talk. You talked before about uh well i don't know if on this podcast previous one about you know thousand abrams tanks are supposed to go over uh that's what that's what ukraine wants so are tanks um done over are they are they is it a uh, it's been a lot of debate the value of tanks and you have three pieces here by peter mansour um williamson uh murphy and uh murray yeah. oh murray and yeah. um good old general um, mcmaster uh, yes. who make who make the case uh why the tank matters matters now and why it when it had its mo bad moments so to say uh in in uh his military history in the last century much of the reason for that was not because of the tank but because the tank wasn't coordinated right with infantry so anyway victor it's a really interesting trio of articles could you tell us about it um uh and and reminding folks strategica you can you know google that you'll find it on the hoover website well uh, as you know, H.R. McMaster was sort of the hero of the greatest tank battle since World War II. 
in the first Gulf War, where I think they destroyed 31 Iraqi tanks, T-72s. And Peter Mansour was chief of staff to Petraeus, but he was a colonel in charge of armor uh, brigade. And then we had Williamson Murray. He's the foremost uh, historian of the Luftwaffe, and especially the idea of um, Blitzkrieg and air support for it. So they wrote, because we, they're... The subtext of this, Jack, was that everybody had seen these Javelin missiles, and they were the modern equivalent of a Panzerfaust, and they were penetrating these Russian tanks, uh, mostly upgraded T-72s, 55, 60 tons. And then, you know, they were $5 million a tank, and these things cost about, you know, 400000 So the idea was that tanks and then drones, you know, hovering over, and then they were going underneath tanks, or they were going down on top of them and blowing them up. And so people said the tanks are over with. And what they're trying to argue is that there's a response and a counter-response throughout history between the def defense and the offense. But you start with the pre preliminary truth, and that is a tank is an armored weapon that people get in that fight people that don't have armor. And yes, there's periods that the people who don't have armor can find devices, Panzerfaust, javelins, drones to attack these tanks. But the tanks aren't stupid. They have counter responses, i.e., they have electric jamming devices that can drown, drop drones, i.e., they have reactive uh, armor that can uh, blow back the, the uh, strike. They have new uh, uranium, depleted uranium or Choblam armor that's ceramic between high tensile steel. Uh, or they have extended 120 millimeter both rifle and smoothbore weapons that are getting increasingly lethal with a longer range. So they can hit the person, uh, the object, the target before they can even see the tank. And as a result of that response, that counter response, I should say, then you're back to square one, which is that some people are armored and protected and some aren't. And that's their point. And that's an argument and what the, you know what and one thing i took away from the whole discussion is that there's essentially three great tanks i'm not talking about the israelis merkava or the uh the amata or whatever it's called in russia but there's three great tanks in the world the leopard tank of germany the abrams and the challenger and they they're upgraded but you know what's funny they're all kind of like the german tiger tank in other words the challenger and the Leopard, the German tank, are about 60 to 65 tons. And the Abrams kind of like a King Tiger, about 70. They all have the same 120. It's kind of like the 88 millimeter. That was the gun par excellence in World War. Now it's 120 millimeters. It's kind of, I know, I think the British is rifled. The others are smoothbore. But it's basically the same weapon. They have about the same number of inches of armor. They have uh, ceramic and... Uh, high tensile steel. They have uh, reactive armor. They have the same look to them. The only difference that's that is the sophistication of uh, the software. And the Americans use uh, aviation fuel, so an Abrams runs on jet fuel, and that gives it a um, a bigger payload. And i.e., they're heavier, they're bigger, 
and they have uh, more secondary weapons, machine guns, and they can carry more armor, but they don't get 350 miles to the tank. They only get about 260, and it's much harder to and more expensive to supply it with aviation fuel rather than right. diesel fuel. Just but, wait till uh, they're electric. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm sure that there's a program in the Pentagon as we speak that some crony that was either a, a former general or a former friend of Bill, uh, Joe Biden has an electric tank company and they're spending billions to see if they can plug it in like a Tesla, but that's, <laughs> and that will fail. But my point is that it hasn't really changed that much. So you always have what they're trying to say, these three very gifted offers is that there's always going to be, oh, tanks are outmoded. Oh, they're, 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 and they're saying, no, they're outmoded for a day or two, a year or two, a phase or two. But then they develop a counter response and you're left with some people are in indestructible, movable platforms with very powerful guns. And unfortunately for the others, they're not. And when you get you get a fleet of tanks, a modern tank, 200 of them in a brigade, Challengers or Leopards or Abrams, and that's what they think was going to – the subtext of this, to use that word one more time, is Iraq, uh, Ukraine. If you can get a brigade of Ukrainians that know how to use them and they have air support and drone support and artillery support, they can just plow – you can't stop them. Right. It's kind of like the Western Front when you, I mean, there was only 1,500 Tiger Ones built, 600 Tiger Twos. And if you were in a Sherman, it was a wonderful tank. It was for ground support for infantry. But if you just happened on that day, you got up in the morning and you had 50,000 Shermans, but you had, it was your number was up and you were against the Tiger, you were dead. Right. And you can say, well, the Tiger has one hour of maintenance and one hour of operation. The Sherman has 10 hours of operation and only for one hour of maintenance. Sherman is easy to take the transmission out. Sherman is practical. Sherman is reliable. Sherman is more comfortable. Sherman has an escape hatch. Sherman was a great tank. Yes, it is. But if you end up with one of these clanky, uh, kind of broken down a lot, pan even a Panther or a Tiger, you're dead because they're, they're, they have impenetrable armor and they have up they have up powered guns and they're going to destroy you. Yeah. And so my point is when that's kind of what what a new Abram or a new challenger or a new leopard is, it's kind of the equivalent of a king tiger in World War II that works, that's completely reliable, that is absolutely uh, dependable, that has but it ha it'll have the same battlefield superiority. And when you turn them loose, this is what all these tank commanders in the West are thinking. Ah, Russia has nothing like this. If we can get them 500 tanks and train them and have an offensive where they just sweep through, they'll go all the way to the Russian border because you can't stop them. That's their dream. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but that's what's behind this. So tanks, it's an, it's a, volley against the the world is now adjudicated through computers and drones and that's war no right they're saying it's still machine guns and grenades and mines and tanks and if you want to win a battle on the ground you got to have tanks, tanks.
Well, Victor, thanks for your wisdom on that and everything else. Uh, before <laughs> you, that was so obvious uh, <laughs> to say. Uh, before we uh, conclude, I do want to recommend to our listeners to visit SybilThoughts.com and you can sign up for the free weekly email newsletter I write for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are trying to strengthen civil society. And it's called Civil Thoughts. And I offer a dozen plus readings, things I've come across in the previous week. Here's a link. Here's an excerpt from this essay. I think people who are intelligent will like it. It's not transactional. It's free. We're not renting the email list, etc. So that's civilthoughts.com. Victor, um, we have a a comment to read. It's short. It's sweet. We thank everyone who, no matter what platform you listen to this podcast on, great. If you listen on uh, Apple or iTunes, you can leave comments. You can leave five zero to five star ratings. Most people leave five stars. Thank you for everyone who who does that. And thanks for those who leave the comments. We read them all. And here, here is one from 1020 Shotgun, and it's simply titled Smart. And it simply says, is there anybody smarter than Victor? I love listening to him on here. And Fox, thanks for your sanity. Thank you, 1020 Shotgun. Thank you, Victor, for all the wisdom you shared. I apologize again for snoring dogs in the background, but at least they weren't barking. <laughs> Mine aren't barking. <laughs> no, they were. No, they they were well behaved. Uh, yes. Today. Uh, uh, so anyway, we'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thanks. Thank Bye-bye. you everybody for listening. 